Welcome everyone to the Law and Society podcast, brought to you by the City Law School at City University of London. The City Law School's Law and Society podcast is co-hosted by me, Dr. Sabrina Germain, Senior Lecturer at the City Law School, and me, Dr. Adrienne Young, also Senior Lecturer at the City Law School. Each episode, we will be interviewing a guest to speak about their expertise on issues relating to the law, the rights stemming from the law, and most importantly, how context matters to all this. We hope you enjoy it. Hi, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us again for the City Law School's Law and Society podcast with me, Dr. Adrian Young. And me, Dr. Sabrina Germain. Welcome to part one on women and Brexit with our very own Hannah Manzur. Hello, Hannah. Thank you so much for coming to speak to us about such a hot topic today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Hannah, so nice to have you. Can I ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners, please? Of course. Um, So my name is Hannah Manza and I'm a PhD student at City University of London in the sociology department. And I'm based in the Violence and Society Centre, where I also work as a research assistant. And um, my background, I was previously a gender policy advisor at the European Parliament during Brexit from 2018 until 2020. Amazing. A very good set of accolades for our um, podcast episode today. So we like to start off all of our episodes asking our guests the same big question. So we would like to ask you, how would you define the concept of law? So don't worry, we know that you're not a uh, lawyer and you may not have the legal background to answer this question or you may not think so. So don't feel pressured to give a very legal answer. Great. Yeah, thank you. Um, So my understanding of the law is basically the formal rules governing a society set by a legal governing institution. So laws, as I understand it, are primarily used to regulate social life and the distribution and exchange of resources. And the law can be a powerful tool for bringing about justice and equality, but it also rests on systems of power and coercive institutions. That's an excellent answer. Why, um, in your opinion, does the law uh, matter for gender? And on the reverse, can I ask you, why does gender matter for the law? That's a really good question. Um, The law has been a powerful tool for progressing gender equality in the UK over the last century and even beyond. Um, Whilst early progress focused on removing laws which formalized women's subordinate position in society, the laws also played an important role in constraining the unequal and discriminatory tendencies of society. So there are debates about feminist approaches to the law, particularly in relation to the state's role as a lawmaker, whether we should push for uh, for state feminism through the mainstreaming of feminist principles and policies through incremental change, or whether we should contest the state's role as a kind of guarantor of the patriarchy and push for more radical reforms. So is the law the best tool for achieving gender equality or a persistent barrier to it? I wonder if I could ask you now, Hannah, what you actually think of that question, what the answer to that question is to you. Um, I think that it's, I kind of have a mixed approach. I think that theoretically, and maybe my kind of underlining beliefs are more for a radical reform, but I think that also like my experience within policymaking institutions like the EU has kind of taught me the benefits of incremental change and also some of the problems around radical reform in terms of a backlash. But this is definitely an ongoing debate that I have with myself. Um, So 
uh, coming back to your to your question on why does the law matter for gender and vice versa, um, it's also important in terms of understanding the role of gender in the creation, implementation and effect of the law. Laws are made primarily by men and women's lives and bodies are subject to far more legal scrutiny than men's. Um, laws are also gendered in the fact that they involve regulation of a society which is itself deeply gendered, although they often can appear gender neutral. So, for example, laws facilitating the privatisation of the NHS may appear gender neutral, but when you understand who works for and uses the NHS most, whose lives will be most affected, and the gendered nature of care economies, then you can start to see why a seemingly gender neutral law can actually act to increase inequalities. So the law matters for gender in terms of its role in entrenching or reducing gender inequalities and gender matters for the law in terms of understanding how it's created through gendered systems of power and how it affects people differently based on existing roles, practices and systems of inequality. Hannah, excellent point. Uh, very interesting um, insight uh, on, on these very broad questions. Um, I wonder if you could talk just a little bit more about the NHS. I'm fascinated with it. Uh, my research is linked to healthcare. Um, and I think I understand where you were going by talking about the privatization and how it is not gender neutral. Could you offer just maybe a few practical examples or just unpack that a little bit more for our listeners, please? Yeah, definitely. So um, when I referred to kind of privatisation, I was also referring to a kind of wider move of underfunding the NHS and removing some kind of programmes and schemes in terms of um, nurse training bursaries and things like that. So when I was working on the Women in Brexit report, I was kind of interested in looking at, you know, things that appeared gender neutral um, and then looking into what kind of background data there was on what the distribution, what the gender distribution of NHS staff was, um, whether women were more likely to use the NHS. And there were some quite interesting um, things that I found in terms of the fact that you'd think that men and women would use the NHS equally, but because of women's caring role in terms of taking elderly family members, sick family members, members, children, and also things like reproductive and maternal health meant that they were more reliant on the NHS. Um, and also in terms of staff, whilst you do have um, a lot more men in the higher levels of the NHS, at the lower levels, um, which are more likely to be hit by um, underfunding and staff shortages, um, it's mostly um, women. I believe that it's around 77% of NHS staff are women. So when you think about, you know, change policy changes that affect the NHS, you also need to understand the kind of underlining demographics of like staff and users of the NHS. Absolutely. I, I think that's a very good point that you're making, not only with regards to underfunding, of course, vital aspect to this public health sector uh, service that we have, but also digging further inequalities as research that we've conducted actually with Adrian shows because of the utilization of care by um, certain women. If it go goes private, uh, it digs further the inequalities because they simply cannot afford private health care. So there's, there's also that, that angle that could potentially emerge. But uh, very, very interesting points. Thank you, Hannah. So last episode, Sabrina and I discussed the theory of intersectionality, which I know that you're very familiar with. And uh, we also uh, discussed broadly what it meant using the context of our own research, which Sabrina just spoke about within the healthcare system um, for ethnic minority women and migrant women. So we want to ask you now what you understand by intersectionality. So why is intersectionality so important to you particularly and especially to your own research? 
my research has become increasingly interested in intersectionality as I've slowly realized, you know, how important it is to take into account other forms of inequality that people experience, not only gender. So I understand um, intersectionality as being about understanding that systems of inequality are not isolated from one another. People are never, never only one thing, but experience uh, multiple forms of advantage and disadvantage based on their particular mix of identities. Inequalities intersect and interact with one another, creating complex and compounding effects. So Crenshaw's concept of intersectionality acts as a kind of analytical lens through which we can understand how systems of power and identity overlap and interlock to create multiple forms of discrimination and exclusion. So in relation to my own research, um, when I was researching for the Women in Brexit report, I found an overall lack of intersectional perspectives, although there were some very notable exceptions from several feminist researchers. Um, It's interesting because Brexit sits at the intersection of multiple systems of inequality. So whilst my report focused on the gender dimensions of inequality, it would be wrong to position women as a homogenous group who will experience the effects of Brexit in similar ways and to the same extent. Definitely. I think that Sabrina and I have certainly found this very same pattern in in research that we've done. And it's really good to hear, or perhaps it's not so good to hear that it's replicated in other areas, but it's good to hear that that is a indeed clear thread throughout all of intersectionality research. Yeah, definitely. Um, So, I mean, in relation to kind of Brexit, um, you know, I felt like it was important not only to focus on gender, but also how it matters for other inequalities. So Brexit matters for class. Brexit generated economic uncertainty and long-term damage to the UK's economy. It also risks undermining workers' rights and employment protections, as well as rising food costs and increased pressures on public services. These are all things that will affect working class and economically disadvantaged groups more. Brexit also matters for systems of citizenship and migration. Anti-migration sentiments were one of the driving factors behind Brexit, and we've seen millions of EU nationals living in the UK face years of uncertainty and, for some, a real undermining of their rights. And also Brexit matters for race. Not only do ethnic minoritised groups face heightened effects of Brexit due to existing economic and social inequalities, but Brexit also saw a surge of white nationalism and colonial nostalgia alongside debates on migration and belonging. It's telling that hate crimes um, spiked following the EU referendum. I think it's really interesting to hear you talk about race in the context of Brexit, because we've also spoken about race on an earlier episode of the podcast. And I don't know that we would necessarily first think of race when we think about Brexit, given that Brexit is about Europe and Europe um, is not always considered to be uh, considering issues of race like people of colour, that I would say is a smaller issue. So I wondered if you could unpack this a little bit more, because I know that race is an issue in the EU for issues like the Eastern European and the Roma Gypsy communities, but maybe people would not necessarily connect Brexit and race immediately. Yeah, absolutely. When I was working in the EU, it was something that I kind of noticed of the fact that, you know, racial inequality wasn't discussed to as nearly as much an extent as other forms of inequality. Um, And I think that that's been 
Uh, I think there's been some progress from the European Commission, particularly from Helena Dali, who's the Commissioner for Equalities Office, um, who published an action plan on this um, not too long ago. Um, but I think it's an overall problem with the EU. And if you actually look at the history of the UK's um, you know, participation in kind of EU negotiations on areas of inequality, it's actually been more progressive than um, other kind of areas of the EU on things like uh, racial inequality. But I think it matters in terms of Brexit not necessarily because of what we'd be losing by leaving the EU, but because of the kind of wider context within which this is happening. So when you have, you know, spikes in anti-migration sentiment, it's not just tied to whether you're a citizen or not. It's tied to other kind of trends of like who belongs in the UK? What should the UK look like? And I think we saw quite a lot of, um, you know, debates and discourses around the EU campaign about, you know, what Britain should look like after after it leaves the EU. And a lot of these were kind of um, influenced by, uh, frankly, racist narratives of, of who should kind of belong. But then you also had the fact that ethnic minoritized groups um, face existing inequalities like economic and social inequalities. And so the impact of Brexit, let's say the economic impact of Brexit will affect them differently. That's so interesting. And also that ties very well in my head as you were speaking to women who are disadvantaged for so many other reasons. Adding all of these extra as is layers of oppression would make their situation more vulnerable. And I suppose that's what you are going to talk about later. So thanks so much for clearing that up for us. I think it ties really nicely to the other themes that this podcast deals with. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, so basically, so I mentioned, you know, how it matters, some of some very uh, brief examples of how it matters for class, citizenship and race. And so across these and many more dimensions of inequality sit real people facing the compounding effect of their position at the intersection of multiple systems of inequality. Um, so part of my current research, um, which looks at the impact of Brexit on gendered violence, involves understanding the implications of um, multiple inequalities for both experiences of violence and how crises and policy changes influence the way violence is governed in society through these intersecting inequalities. So at the moment, I'm looking at how violence is distributed across society at the intersections of gender, ethnicity and migrant status um, and addressing the role of these inequalities and how economic and criminal law seeks to reduce violence and for who. Um, so things like disaggregating data on violence by multiple inequalities and asking questions about what policies mean for people facing these multiple inequalities is essential for understanding how people's lives and experiences are shaped by more than just one identity and more than just one form of inequality and oppression, and that these may often amount to more than the sum of their parts. Fascinating and so interesting. Could you um, just unpack a little bit what do we mean by disaggregated data? What do we exactly mean by that? And why does it matter to do it? Yeah, absolutely. This is something that I'm actually uh, working on, particularly the last few weeks. Um, so when you look at statistics like whether crime is going up or down, that is talking about the total population. And if you disaggregate, let's say by gender, you separate whether crime is going up or down for men or for women, there are clear differences. So, you know, violence might be going down for men, but it might actually have stayed the same for women. So it's important to not only look at the total population when you're looking at things like violence trends, but also what 
types of people. Um, so part of my research means looking at not just the total population and how they experience violence, but looking at it uh, disaggregated by groups of ethnicity, migrant status and gender. Very interesting. So uh, I guess you get a more granular approach and uh, a more exact picture in your research doing that. So I guess that's key um, in what you're looking into uh, right now. So you mentioned um, the Women and Brexit report uh, that has been a major piece of work for, for you. Uh, we understand that it looks at the gender nature and impact of Brexit. Uh, but to start off, can you tell our listeners what Brexit really means in terms of law and why does context matter really to this particular question? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, what does Brexit mean is uh, a very uh, divisive and ongoing question that a lot of people have. And I think that, you know, Theresa May's definition of Brexit means Brexit wasn't particularly helpful, but it did kind of hint to how complicated and divisive the kind of even the idea of what Brexit means is. Um, so I understand uh, Brexit is having multiple dimensions. So it's a legal process. It's also a form of state restructuring. It can be also considered an economic and political crisis, but also a social movement and upheaval. So there's multiple dimensions to kind of what Brexit is, and different analyses focus on these different dimensions. Sounds quite complicated, doesn't it? Yeah, yes, it does. Uh, it's, you know, not surprising that it's taken such a long time for Brexit negotiations to go ahead, um, you know, and also difficulties in understanding what Brexit means, what its effects will be, because it's kind of cascaded through the UK's political, legal, economic and social system in different ways and in ways that kind of overlap with each other as well. So it's definitely a, a complicated process. As a legal process, Brexit, as I understand it, involves a complex disentangling of EU and UK laws, policies, institutions and resources, and a withdrawal of EU legal competencies from the UK, although not completely. So Brexit, you can understand as a combination of the legal process itself and their consequences. It's an economic, social and political crisis, and it's also a turning point for the UK in terms of its identity, its value and its projects. The report looks at the implications of Brexit in terms of the loss of EU legal and governing competencies, the loss of EU resources such as funding and collaboration, and the economic impact on public spending, welfare and household income. Brexit can be defined in legal terms through things like the UK-EU trade deal and the withdrawal agreement, but this only captures a small part. So, for example, in order to understand the risk of Brexit to employment rights, it's also important to understand the context of the UK's past reluctance to pass EU laws on workers' rights, for example, the Working Time Directive, and also increasing deregulatory pressures by politicians, the financial pressures of Brexit on UK businesses, and the loss of the EU's role in securing a minimum legal threshold for protecting these rights. I think it's really interesting to hear you talk about the law and Brexit, the UK-EU trade deal, the withdrawal agreement. As an EU lawyer myself, who also does a lot on Brexit, everybody is talking about the two you know, huge legal documents. And it seems that that is the only thing that they can talk about as if Brexit is nothing else. So it's really important and great to hear that you are looking beyond that and that there's more elements. And of course, to highlight women who have their voices you know, quite silenced by all of this. So thanks very much for doing that, Hannah. I think it's great to hear all of that, especially as a lawyer. As I say, people are obsessed with law, but it's so much more than that. It's context as well, which is what this podcast is all about. 
Yeah, absolutely. Like, um, I obviously don't have a legal background, um, but it was really interesting. I actually, as part of the report and also as part of my work in the EU, um, had to read through in a lot of detail all of these very long legal documents and trying to kind of um, not only make sense of the, the kind of technicalities around it, but also kind of think carefully about what this might mean for different groups given my um, understanding of existing equalities in society. And it's also quite interesting watching the development of these negotiations and how much was left out of these documents. There are so many things that are still, five years on, undecided um, and, you know, things to keep a, a close eye on. As you say, undecided, I think also invisible and not even considered like the gendered effects of Brexit, which brings us to our next next question. So the report that you co-authored says that one of its main aims is to contest the assumption that Brexit is gender neutral. And like I say, I think a lot of people out there would never have thought Brexit was gendered. So can you explain to us all exactly why gender is relevant to Brexit and why it will affect women differently? Yeah, absolutely. It was really interesting kind of not only looking at the literature that does exist, although it is limited, on gendered perspectives on on Brexit, but also the kind of reception that I got when I told people that this is what I was researching. A lot of people were either um, confused and not really understanding what those two things had to do with one another, or actually actively annoyed that it was, you know, feminists trying to make yet another thing about gender, when you have to kind of understand that if we're looking at at the impact of laws and policies on society, you have to understand how society is gendered and that it's gendered in a variety of different ways and on different levels as well. So once you kind of appreciate, you know, the invisible ways that the world is gendered, you can start to see the links between different policy areas that you might be surprised by um, in the context of these inequalities. So um, touching back on some of the the points that I try to make in my report on, you know, making this case that Brexit isn't gender neutral. Um, the first point might be that um, Brexit has been a very male dominated affair with attention focused on masculinized narratives of power and control and on traditional male dominated policy areas of finance, trade and borders. Issues of gender equality and women's rights have largely been excluded from discussion and analysis, dismissed by the notion that Brexit is gender neutral, that gender isn't important for understanding Brexit and its effects. Yet Brexit will likely affect women and men very differently, both due to the gender dimensions of Brexit itself and how its effects are translated through these existing gendered roles, practices and structures. I cannot help but, uh, of course, bringing it back to us, Adrian, I think it's awful to do that. Uh, it's not all about our research. But, Hannah, what you're saying resonates so much with me because of what we've been looking at with regards to the pandemic. People have said that the pandemic is an equalizer or um, that the virus doesn't discriminate. And then we found uh, that it's extremely gendered in a way. So it really resonates with me that these deep social phenomenons that on one hand are political, like Brexit, or uh, medical, like the pandemic, have deep effects on, on gender and, and really this hidden um, aspects that you highlight, I think is really important. So I'm I'm really grateful to know um, that you've been looking into this so closely um, and, and I will let you carry on, but I thought it was very important to just highlight this further. It's not just about making feminist points for the sake of making feminist points, right? There is something really even in facts and reality um, that really underpins this. 
in relation to COVID, it was quite frustrating at the beginning to see people talk about how it was a great equaliser. Even not just looking specifically at gender, you saw, you know, very wealthy celebrities talking about how it was a great equaliser while they were self-isolating in mansions, you know. Um, and you can see the kind of like um, implications of your position um, within society, what kinds of uh, existing discriminations and inequalities you face, that doesn't suddenly go away because there's a pandemic. It's actually amplified because of it. I mean, I could talk for quite a while on the kind of gender dimensions of COVID and I'll try and uh, avoid that. But, you know, there has been a growing kind of consensus that that the pandemic has been gendered. And it's been, you know, quite uh, encouraging to see more and more evidence come out um, on this. In terms of its legal effects, the loss of the EU's protection floor and legal competencies in the context of existing and Brexit-driven pressures poses a risk to existing employment rights. Women are more likely to be in precarious and low-paid employment, meaning that they are often more reliant on these protections. And in terms of its socioeconomic effects, the impact of Brexit on the UK's economy risks reintroducing austerity-like measures, which have previously fallen almost entirely on the shoulders of women. Data coming from the House of Commons Library actually shows that 86% of austerity cuts came at the cost of women. Welfare cuts and underfunding public services hits women harder than men because of their social roles as carers and their economic disadvantage as unpaid workers. Um, There is also the loss of EU funding and collaboration for women's rights and equality, including funding for domestic violence services. Um, The undermining of equality laws and protections must be understood in the context of women's exclusion from Brexit decision making, the economic impact disproportionately disadvantaging women, and also the loss of EU funding and collaboration which aims to progress equality. Well, clearly, uh, there's a lot there that you've uh, uncovered and and unpacked. So I want to approach uh, a a little bit the final section of your report that focuses on different groups of women. So we've seen how um, uh, Brexit is gendered, but um, how do you use the uh, intersectional perspective in your report? And why do you think it is important to highlight that dimension? Yeah, absolutely. As I mentioned earlier, it's important to understand that women are not a homogenous group and that grouping half the population into one category involves conflating a lot of other differences together. So whilst the report um, does mention aspects of Brexit that may affect some women more than others um, throughout it, it was also important to focus on how additional inequalities and vulnerabilities would intersect with gender dimensions of Brexit, Um, although a lack of literature meant that this section was still limited. Um, It's also important to understand the gendered effects of Brexit in the context of increased hostility towards migration, rising white nationalism and British exceptionalism, and the resurfacing of long-term social tensions. The report looks at women facing intersecting inequalities such as minoritized ethnic women and migrant women, women facing um, intersecting vulnerabilities such as victims of gendered violence, as well as the implications of national and regional positions such as Welsh, Scottish and Northern Irish women. Accounting for intersecting inequalities not only means understanding the combined effects of multiple forms of inequalities, but also the effects of particular intersections. So just as one example, Muslim women not only face street harassment because of their religion and their gender, but particularly because of the intersection of these two identities, 
The politicization and stigma surrounding the hijab means that Muslim women wearing head coverings are often harassed, not only because they are Muslim or because they're a woman, but because of the additional stigma and discrimination based on this dual identity. Um, and it's interesting to note that in the immediate days following the 2016 Brexit referendum, anti-Muslim hate crimes rose by 475%. 475%. That's a huge number. Yeah, that is a really big number. And you can also see increases in other forms of discrimination-based um, uh, violence and harassment um, based on other inequalities. You also saw a 175% increase in homophobic attacks following the EU referendum. And we saw this both on an immediate level in terms of the days following the Brexit referendum, as well as on a wider scale throughout the kind of Brexit process. And it's also important to note that the UK's EU settlement scheme required EU nationals living in the UK to apply for UK residency post-Brexit. But this system has been criticised as being largely based on the idea of productive man, which disadvantages unpaid carers, victims of domestic violence and non-EU partners of EU nationals, all of whom are mostly women. Yes, that's very much what I do as well, very much in line with my research. Yeah, no, I was absolutely fascinated to kind of see your your research. And you also kind of uncovered some of the problems that I think faces a lot of people looking into the gender dimensions of, of Brexit in terms of, you know, um, a lack of um, available data on these things, and also a lack of disaggregation and necessary information to kind of uncover the the implications of inequalities um, for for things like citizenship, um, violence, and different types of experiences in society. Thanks so much, Hannah. I didn't expect to plug my own research, but it's been a lot of plugging of Sabrina and my research today. No, I've really enjoyed it. I'm absolutely fascinated by, by both your research um, areas. So it's been a long time since the whole saga of Brexit continued, and a lot has changed since the report was published in 2019, not least a pandemic which we're all facing. So since then, what areas do you think are most concerning or in need of attention that you'd like to bring to attention today? It's actually been very interesting kind of rereading over the, the report um, in preparation for kind of doing this podcast and kind of looking at the areas I felt were most concerning versus what has kind of been unearthed in the meantime. Um, and definitely COVID was a very unexpected uh, interacting effect in how Brexit would, would impact women. Um, and I think it's, you know, important to note that uh, COVID hasn't made Brexit go away, but it has kind of eclipsed it in terms of the news and that it's also interacted with one another. The first kind of point that I would make is, is that basically that the interaction between Brexit and COVID is, is a particular area of concern. Sorry. As somebody who also does a little bit of EU law in my spare time, I have heard that indeed it is very difficult to quantify what's the effect of Brexit and what's the effect of COVID. Nobody really knows which has actually been the massive contributor. So this is definitely a narrative that is also in the legal circles. Yeah, definitely. And it's something that I found in my own research as well. My initial PhD proposal was to look at the look at trends in violence over time, comparing um, trends before Brexit and trends after Brexit. But because of the interacting effect of COVID, it's made it almost impossible to kind of identify whether violence has gone up or down because of COVID or because of Brexit. You know, you have, as an example, COVID meant that women facing domestic violence were unable to 
to leave their homes being trapped at home with their perpetrator. And we saw a big increase in domestic violence. Part of my own research is looking at the impact of Brexit in terms of the economic factors and relating to criminal law and how that affects domestic violence. So it would be very difficult to kind of disentangle these effects. So my research has had to adapt by looking at policy changes over time in relation to the level of violence um, on as a time series analysis pre-Brexit and then based on the statistical model that I create, then applying that to the post-Brexit period. So a second point I would kind of make is the wider socio-political shift to the right, the rise of populism and the hostility towards progressive values and equality priorities. The Borders and Nationality uh, Bill is heavily based on the context of Brexit. It's difficult to define the edges of Brexit against the wider nationalist, anti-migrant and populist movement in the UK because these are so heavily interlinked. But also it's essential to understand how laws and policies affect inequalities in the the context of these con- these concerning socio-political shifts. A further area of concern would be the kind of detachment from the EU. There seems to have been little effort to maintain relations and cooperation with an attitude of doing things differently from the EU almost for the sake of it. We aren't even aware of the missed opportunities like the EU's upcoming directive on violence against women and other progressive kind of proposals. Whilst the EU isn't perfect and we shouldn't be replicating everything it does, there's a lot of value in maintaining the transnational feminist networks and EU collaboration and from taking progressive EU lawmaking into account when pursuing our own equality agendas. And the final point I'd make, particularly in relation to the the subject of this podcast, is a persistent lack of attention to the effects of Brexit on intersecting inequalities. Marginalised groups seem to be either facing increased hostility or slipping out of view within the context of Brexit and the wider politicisation of equality debates. Underfunding support services and increased restrictions on migration is likely making life more difficult for undocumented or disadvantaged migrant women. The backlash against the Black Lives Matter movement and increased nationalist sentiments combined with the economic pressures of Brexit and COVID is also likely to affect ethnic minoritised women, including the significant number working in precarious jobs or in the highly pressurised NHS. Which aspects of racial and gender inequalities have gained attention in the last three years, the overall shift among lawmakers in government seems to be increasingly hostile towards progress on addressing inequalities. So I cannot believe it because I've enjoyed myself so much yet again that we're coming to the end of our section here on the podcast with you, Hannah. But last but really not least, we like to end uh, episodes usually by asking all of our guests uh, their opinion on whether or not they believe that context matters and how they would define law and context. So we would love to hear your take on this. Yeah, absolutely. I think because of my background in politics and in policymaking, most of my work actually has been focused on the context around which um, laws and policies are made. Um, And my current research is is actually trying to pay more attention to the content and, um, you know, kind of technical details of the laws that I'm looking at. But a lot of my own research has really prioritized the role of, of context and been particularly interested in that. In terms of how I would define the law in context, I understand it as um, understanding the creation and effect of laws in society 
means understanding how society is structured through systems of inequality, the institutions and processes of lawmaking and the people and organisation to which laws apply are never impartial to these systems of inequality. We need to understand the different roles, responsibilities and pressures put on different groups of people in society and how the same law might affect people differently. For example, how parental rights um, affect mothers and fathers differently. We also need to understand who makes, enforces and has access to the law. The law has historically been by and for white men, although this is to some extent changing. Um, People face many barriers to accessing their rights equally under the law as well. If you look at things like cuts to legal aid and the Crown Prosecution Services policy change on rape cases um, and how that's kind of affected people's ability to not only access the law, but what kind of outcomes they have, how much access they have, not only to the system, but also to justice. Um, And also content is really important in terms of understanding the changing social, political and economic landscape. What does the law enable or prevent within a particular context? What is it responding to? So some examples would be lockdown in the context of COVID, austerity in the context of the global financial crisis, migration restrictions in the context of Brexit, EU expansion and the Arab Spring. So when you're looking at law, you kind of need to look at what the kind of uh, political and social landscape is. You know, why has the law been um, created? Why has the policy been created? What kind of problem is it responding to? And who is it prioritizing in, in whose lives it's trying to improve? And that is exactly why we've asked you to be on the podcast, to have a view from a non-lawyer, to really put everything in context, to really get us to understand why law and society work in the way it does. So it only leaves me to thank you very, very much, Hannah, for your amazing insights, your really interesting thoughts on a very complicated topic, Brexit, um, the one that I haven't even gotten my head around, and talk about an even more complicated topic of intersectionality and women with it. Thank you so much for joining us. I am sure our listeners will have loved that. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to part two. This part is on gender pricing, and we are delighted to have Susanna Hade Kechman joining us today. Hello, Susanna. Thank you so much for coming to speak to us. Hello, Adrian and Sabrina. Thank you for having me. Susanna, I'm so pleased that you're here with us. And can I ask you to introduce yourself for our listeners? Yes, um, sure. Uh, I'm Brazilian. I'm a PhD researcher here at City. I'm lucky to have Sabrina and Gretchen Bars at my, as my supervisors. And I'm interested in uh, feminist legal theory, gender studies and gender pricing. Then you're the perfect guest for our podcast today. As you all know, we're talking about intersectionality and feminism in context. And Susanna is going to speak to us today about her area of expertise, gender pricing. But before we get into gender pricing, we like to start off all of our interviews with our guests, asking them all the very big question. So we're going to start with you on this question too, Susanna. Could you tell us how you would define the concept of law? Well, um, that's an interesting question. Thank you for that. I think my perception of law evolves along with my research, but I can say that my understanding of law sees it as a social factor, as a historical and cultural form of social organization, 
And uh, I understand law as an instrument to articulate and organize the different relationships in society. And they therefore, I think they must be studied together. So in that sense, uh, law facilitates social interaction exchanges and systematizes the state's function. And uh, here uh, we can see law both as a program orientating the state's action and as a tool of coercion. And ultimately, I perceive law as a mechanism for resolving disputes and keeping society stable and as a tool for reducing the inequalities. Wow, I love this. A lot to unpack here. And I think it's very interesting when you talk about law as a program and as organizing orientated state actions. I really picked up on that. So um, I'm very curious to continue the conversation and mostly on gender pricing. So for our listeners, how would you define gender pricing? What is it exactly? Is it a phenomenon? What does it entail, Susanna? So... Um... Let's begin with theory and then we go to some examples. How about that? Concerning theory, uh, gender pricing is described by a, a German study as the price differentiation according to sex in everyday's products, such as clothes, toys, hygiene products and services, especially laundry and hairdressing. Uh, it not only covers the sales in commerce, but describes the behavior of uh, the entire chain involved in the production, including manufacturers, retailers, and services providers. And um, do you know when you go to a supermarket or a pharmacy and you see two razor blades of the same model and from the same brand, one is pink and the other one is blue, and the pink is more expensive? That's gender pricing. Another example, when you go to the laundry and you ask for the price of a dry clean uh, for a simple white shirt and this price is different for men and women, that's gender pricing too. Uh, gender pricing is present in our lives every day, but sometimes it's so subtle that we don't even notice that it's there. That's very interesting. I think, yeah, we're we're very much unaware of that. Uh, phenomenon and um, and how much it impacts us as, as women, all three of us, I guess. Would you say that you said that it impacts the entire chain? So there's an element of marketing involved in this. Um, does it impact the production? So that means that when we're, for example, um, marketing some, some razor blades or things like that, that people along um, the line of production thought about this. They say, oh, well, we're going to market it towards women. We're going to put the price a little higher. Is that what happens or is it kind of just happens uh, by accident? I don't think it's by accident. Uh, I think that's all systematized in a way that we think is an accident or something that uh, is just there. We don't perceive it. It's just a few pences of difference, but uh, uh, I don't think it's by chance. Uh, it, it, it can't be by chance when, when you analyze it deeply. That's really interesting, I think. And also, it's funny to hear you say it's not by chance, because I would probably argue that a lot of the things in our society which are gendered are not necessarily by chance anymore. And as you were talking about gender pricing, Susanna, I was just thinking, I don't think that 
it's something we necessarily question at the outset. You just kind of live with it every day. You see it, you're, as, as we all are, three women, we'll go to the store, we'll just accept, okay, we have to pay a bit more for this or that. And it's so interesting to hear that there's research being done on why that is, and we have to actually challenge the status quo, I suppose. Is that is that right? Yeah, uh, I completely agree with you. I remember like few years ago, uh, going to the supermarket and the example I gave you about the razor blades. Um, I, was, I was with my mother and she told me, oh, we should buy the men one uh, because it's cheaper. And I thought, no, I can buy it. There are differences. I'm a woman. I should buy the women one. Yeah, we have to challenge these things and understand how everything works. So we can take our decisions understanding this whole gender system and how it oppresses us in different levels. And I think that no woman would disagree with having to pay less and how we're born into a society where everything is more expensive. That just seems a little bit unfair, doesn't it? So thanks, Susanna, for bringing this to attention. Looking really forward to hearing a bit more about this as we go on. So I thought I would ask you then if you could maybe clarify to us whether something that I've heard of, this pink tax, is that the same thing as gender pricing? I know that they're kind of connected. So could you tell us the difference between a pink tax and what you call gender pricing, the differences between the two things, and maybe a bit of the historical or social background? Because I think, again, it's just something people would never necessarily think of as a problem or an issue. Thank you for asking this, Adrian. Um, of course, gender pricing, I would say, is a broad concept. And pink tax is a form of gender pricing because uh, when, you're, when you're talking about gender, it can go both ways. It could be that men are charged a higher amounts than women or women. But let's concentrate ourselves in the pink tax. First thing, it is not a tax. It doesn't fulfill the essential element of what a tax is because, well, it doesn't benefit state, it is not derived from public law and doesn't have revenue collection as its primary function. And the term's origin seems to have emerged from a campaign conducted by a French women's group called Georgette Sun in 2014. They made a website uh, in a social network and uh, coined a campaign uh, to stop the women tax. And they posted a lot of photos of products in the supermarket and comparing them, the products target to women and men. And after a while, uh, the name evolved to Tashi Hose. And later on, when the uh, United States started to pay attention to pink tax. So pink tax is, uh, refers to a form of pricing based on gender in which women are required to pay higher prices for products and services that, if not the same, are super similar to those intended for a male audience. And precisely because there are no substantial distinctions regarding the essence of these goods and services, uh, what makes the difference between those offered to men and women is the packaging in shades of pink or pastel. This is why it became known as the pink tax. In a way, we could almost say that there is a fee 
or a cost for being a woman and that this cost is embedded in the final value of the product or service. And it is interesting to highlight that the shades of pink will not be the ultimate feature uh, of a pink tax item. Because if a product or a service is intended for women, either by its characteristics, the name or the packaging, and there are no notable differences between this good or service and the one marketed for men, but there is a price difference, uh, we will deem it to be a pink tax item. And the closest definition that we have is from a Turkish professor, and she states that the pink tax behaves as an entirely hidden uh, selective consumption tax. So it really slips in there. So I guess it's it's really not something so noticeable. I mean, I really like your example of you shopping with your mother at the grocery store because I, I can very much relate to this. This is something that I would do saying, well, this is a product for, for women. Um, I can see on, on, on the reverse um, men doing that too, saying, well, no, I, I'm only going to shop for male deodorant. But essentially, we're so unaware that we're just being manipulated in a way by the marketing because um, the products are essentially the same. So that's quite interesting. So is it really a problem that's only related to market freedom and the power forces of the market? Or it is like a concept of, of demand and supply in a way? Or does it relate to the law, really? Because it seems to be very much geared towards an economic issue, isn't it? Or is there some law element in there? Yeah, I would say that um, concerning gender pricing and specifically the pink tax, one of the main obstacles in dealing with it is the reluctance uh, to interfere in this free market economy. And uh, when you analyze uh, the reports for governments, uh, we see that they aim to safeguard uh, this economic efficiency as much as possible and seem preoccupied with the consequences that an interference may trigger. Um, in that sense, there are two studies, one from the France Ministry of Economy and one from the United States Government Accountability Office. And they analyzed gender pricing and concluded that it is challenging to recognize it as something harmful because it is related to economy and what we say is our standard business practices. So what you're trying to say here is it sounds like they just decided that it was fine and that was it, that there was actually nothing going on, no underlying discrimination. That's just how the market works. Um, I hesitate to say that this is because the Ministry of the Economy in France and the US Government Accountability Office perhaps is made up of a certain gender of individual, but uh, I wondered what you thought about this, Susanna, because that seems quite interesting to me. It's so stark what your examples are. And I, I now thinking in my own life that that certainly is something that is obvious that I've just ignored, but the actual reports and the actual investigation didn't conclude anything wrong. Yeah, it, it was so weird when I analyzed these documents and it made me feel so bad and so angry. <laughs> I don't know the reasons. Uh, we know that there's a lot of lobby involved uh, in, in, in these things. These are huge industries, especially hygiene products. 
when we start to, to think, well, it's just a few pencils as we talked before, but when you start to sum every woman pays more, it's a huge amount of money they that they might lose uh, if this thing is prohibited. So I don't know what's happening in this in these two studies, but it's interesting to notice that the French study analyzed the different uh, services than the usual pink tax services, such as locksmiths, moving and mortgage. And I don't know, uh, we could uh, go further and say that these studies were biased in some kind of way, but uh, I, I, we don't need to go there. Uh, luckily, we have other sources of information to compare with. I think it's important to 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 say that uh, not everyone recognizes uh, gender pricing as something unlawful or something that causes discrimination. There are studies on, on the other hand. A very interesting point to make, certainly, because we're all good lawyers here and you want to see both sides. I suppose, yes, there is a certain viewpoint that these three women on this podcast might be taking, but it is, it is good definitely to hear that. Thanks, Susanna. That's really, really interesting. Along with the, these two studies, Sometimes when you talk to people about gender pricing, a lot of them will say that, oh, that's just business as usual and companies should be free to establish the prices of their products. And also people are free to buy what they want and they could simply avoid buying something that is pricier. But, uh, well, as I, as I said before, I consider myself a consumer that is well informed and I was in the gro at the grocery store with my mom and I thought, no, I cannot buy this man's razors. So in my opinion, it is more profound than just a market price uh, practice. And it is something that is related to law. I think we need to analyze gender pricing and the pink tax in their context. And that helps, in my view, to realize that it goes, be it goes beyond an answer like, Oh, women buy more so we can charge them more or women's shirts are more delicate and need to be handled with more attention or even something that I already read, like women are pickier than men. So we spend more in advertisement and hence we can charge them more. And what is especially important regarding context is that gender pricing is not the only thing that affects women's finances. The first one, according to a survey uh, conducted by the UN, women's salaries are 23% lower than men's. That means that for each dollar a man receives, a woman earns 77 cents, which means a difference of 23 cents or 23%. This data is global, which means that the difference could be wider uh, depending on race, religion, particularly uh, in developing countries in which informal labor is still prevalent. And that's not all. Uh, there's also unpaid housework. Uh, a 2018 report by the International Labour Organization stated that uh, 16 billion hours are spent each day on unpaid care work. 
And women perform on average 76% of these hours. So what we have, women have lower wages, we perform unpaid housework, and we must spend more on the same or substantially similar products and service when compared to men. And the problem doesn't end there because uh, these products and service, they help to promote and impose these gender norms, which are these socially constructed ideals of what a woman and what a man should be. I know it's a lot, but all this to say that is much more than a problem of competition or freedom of market. It's something related to a legal issue and a central problem that must be tackled worldwide, which is gender equality and this imposition of identities of a binary perception of gender. So I want to understand uh, the context of this with my research. Why, despite the prohibition of discrimination, gender pricing still continues to affect more women than men? And also, how can we emancipate ourselves from this structure when we have lower wages, perform most of unpaid housework, and are charged higher prices than men? I think that's very important, the point you're making here, because it's not about saying we um, don't believe that uh, men are valuable. It is more about equality. I think that's the very foundational legal point. It's about reestablishing that inequality that's structurally embedded here again. Um, I think that's a running theme throughout our podcast of those structural inequalities on on different um, angles or different uh, individuals, and sometimes they are intersecting as well. So it's interesting to see that that women are not valued for the contributions that they make, but not only that, they're punished for that contribution they seem to be making to society, which is quite shocking. So what data are you looking at in your research and what have you been analyzing so far? I'm, I'm really curious to hear more about that. So the good thing about uh, this phenomenon is that we have a lot of market research on gender pricing. So there's these two reports that I told you about, the one from the uh, United States Government Accountability Office and the French report. And both of them uh, considered that was challenging to recognize gender pricing as something prejudicial as it was related to market freedom. But that there's good news, uh, at least for me, Other studies uh, have reported that the pink tax does profoundly affect women. And uh, in 2015 and 16, uh, two studies conducted in in the United States found that on average, toiletries are 13% more expensive for women and products in general are 7% costly for them. Here uh, in the United Kingdom uh, in 2016, the newspaper The Times analyzed hundreds of products and found that across equivalent goods, uh, the products market for women are on average 37% pricier. And in some categories, the difference was even higher. For instance, standard razors were 49% pricier for women than men. In 2017, I studied in Germany, uh, showed that the pink tax was found in less than 4% of products in that country. However, in services, women paid significantly more, close to 50% more. 
All those studies concluded that it's more expensive for women to meet the cultural gender expectations. And these analyses were more restricted to classic economy, but two of them uh, were more in-depth and found that the pink tax is related to the burden carried by women to fulfill the expectations to appear attractive in a male-dominated world. That's a really important point, I think, that you're making. And I suppose that one of the first big things that we can do to bring this to light, given the studies, for, uh, the study that you talked about from France and the US that did not find anything a, a problem, is to highlight that it is, perhaps, and give examples. And it's really um, exciting to think that your PhD will will be one of these, Susanna. So we really look forward to reading that when you're, when you're done with it. I was just thinking that there was a lot of uh, issues around the, the tampon tax in the UK. So, of course, these uh, sanitary products, which only women need to buy and need to use, have also a tax imposed on top of them. So not only do men not even purchase these products because they don't need them, women who need them for their own dignity then have to pay extra. So I think that that is another example. I don't know if you know much about this, Susanna. Yeah, uh, I read about uh, the tampon tax. It is interesting because people almost always confuse the two things as they are so related. These are essential products. It's not something uh, you're buying just to amuse yourself. It's something that you need. And here the tampon tax was uh, prohibited. And there was a popular petition to legislate around pink tax. And it was ended under the argument that, okay, tampon tax is already prohibited. We, We already deal with that. So we have to talk. Uh, about these things. Uh, they, they are almost invisible to us, but they are affecting us and they are affecting women all around. And if we don't talk about them, they will continue to be considered uh, standard business practices and something that we have to face every day. I think that's the ultimate struggle of of intersectionality and, and feminist legal studies is to make women's voices not invisible. So we are very happy to have this contribution to that, not making these people feel like their voices aren't heard. So I wanted to ask you then how feminist legal theory in particular can help you with your research if we're going to come back to this idea of how theory fits in with the data, with the case studies. Well, feminist legal theory is a turning point in my research because it allows me to go further than this uh, classic economic analysis or even a purely abstract black law doctrinal investigation about uh, discrimination. It gives me the context of women's different struggles and the kinds of oppressions that we are suffering. So feminist uh, legal theory is giving me this critical perspective and a framework to analyze the whole played by law in the oppression of women. Specifically in my research, uh, because we have so many branches uh, within the feminist legal theory, I'm using uh, the social reproduction theory because it looks how norms operate as instruments of domination and accumulation 
as well shows me the limits that a classic liberal feminist theory uh, has uh, something to securing women's emancipation. So I'm loving it. I think studying social law and law in context makes everything so vivid. And what feminist ego theory is doing for me is showing me that we need the contingent understanding of gender, race, and sexuality to subvert the different oppressions and reach emancipation. That's fantastic. But building on this, I, I wondered whether you thought that there is a problem with group rights and the fixation of identities. Do you think that a universal classification of women is the best choice for feminism? Is that really helping further um, the cause and emancipation? Um, that's a very intriguing question. I think we could do a special and spend all day talking about this. Because this discussion on whether women are enough of a concise and unitary group to be a collective legal subject and hence receive protection is one of the greatest debates in feminist, in feminist legal theory. Um, it's kind of a paradox uh, because we need these concepts or categories to endow people belonging to a particular group some protection. On the other hand, we might have at least two problems when describing this group in abstraction. The first one is to leave people outside of it because they don't have all the characteristics that would allow them to belong to that group. And on the other one, you may force some people to adequate themselves and deny some part of their identities to belong to that group. And that could be violent in terms of imposition of identities and dangerous. For instance, uh, in a very simple uh, example, what could happen if I deserve protection as a woman, but I don't feel like this idea of a feminine woman represents me? Will I feel included in this group? Will I receive protection the same way uh, as the other ones? So in that sense, Professor Nicola Lacey mentioned it, that the problem with gr group rights is that this fixation of identities can be used as an oppressive way to fix the members in identities they may want to escape. And also some definitions could be inconsistent with fundamental civil, political, social, or economic rights. So regarding women, uh, a universal classification is problematic as it erases the differences of power among this group and how the different contexts affect women's lives and struggles. And in a way, I agree that the construction of women as a group is relevant in reaching equality with men, but it's not enough without the context. We cannot forget that this universal perspective of women as a middle class, white woman as a model, and disregards the different perspectives as race, sexuality, nationality, religion, and we can go alone. But as an abstraction, this unitary voice does not provide an adequate answer to gender equality. It's just the beginning. So the perception of women has to be contingent, encompassing these differences and the limitations of group rights. I agree again with Professor Lacey that the interaction between legal, political, economic, 
and cultural institutions is critical in understanding this difference and reaching emancipation and equality. That really speaks very well to our discussion that we had in episode number six on intersectionality, because, and indeed, we absolutely cannot make this group of women a homogenous one. There are so many differences, but it is an important thing to, as you say, Susanna, consider women as a group to help us to reach equality with men, but not to limit it just to everyone is a woman and that's it. Because as Kimberly Crenshaw, the founder of Intersectionality has said, that just leaves a lot of people out. It makes a lot of people invisible. So if anybody wants to hear more about that, you can go back to episode six. But we want to wrap up now with Susanna and ask you, last but not least, what your opinion is on whether context matters and how you would define law in context. I know that you've talked a lot about this already, but we thought we might wrap it up by letting you tell us how this matters so much and why. Well, yeah, uh, I guess my other answers uh, gave away what I think about this. Um, Context uh, is everything. And uh, as a social, cultural, and historical factor, um, the study of law gains significance when done in context. Uh, My research is my example. Uh, I, I could analyze it from an economic perspective or from a discrimination perspective, but wouldn't I lose a lot regarding women's rights and the women's struggles and and everything? So uh, with context, we can understand the specificities and the peculiarities and seek better answers regarding justice and advancing in the fight of inequalities. So it's everything. That's brilliant. Thank you so much, Susanna, for this. I I think it's a great multi-layered perspective on what it is to be a woman um, and our challenges and our issues. So thank you very much for sharing all of this and your research with us. Thank you very much for inviting me. You've been listening to the Law and Society podcast brought to you by the City Law School at City University of London. We hope you enjoyed it and look forward to you joining us soon for another episode.